Would you turn with me to John chapter 20? We're going to just work our way through this passage this morning, and, and we said it already this morning that Christ is risen, and you respond as a church that he is risen indeed. And we're going to come back to that at the close just a bit because I think there's something in that that I don't want us to miss practically as a church and what our mission is as a church. But what if I were to come to you this morning and say, I have good news and I have bad news? Which would you prefer first? Now, this is a bit of a rhetorical question. Uh, I've actually done a little bit of research on this, uh, on other studies that have been done. And based on some of those recent studies, it's estimated that about four out of five people prefer to hear the bad news first when it comes to situations where there's both a positive and negative information to acknowledge. So, for example, let me give you the bad news. Your favorite Easter candy is not somebody else's favorite. The good news is it's yours. So you feel better about your Easter candy, right? We're in that unique season where Easter baskets are changing in our household, and I walked by last night as I was uh, doing some vacuuming and, and helping to get things set so that Stephanie could do kind of the final zhuzh of the house after everybody goes to bed before uh, we all get together this afternoon as families and celebrate. And I walked by and I started laughing because this is the first year I've seen an energy drink in every Easter basket. I was like, we are in a new season of life. We weren't dying eggs, but we still need energy, right? I mean, so there's good and bad news that we experience in life, right? So there's the good news of God provides caffeine. There's the bad news of we depend on it too much. What's, what this research seems to indicate is that humans prefer to process information with conclusions that leave us with a sense of a few different things. That leaves us with a sense of, of meaning, of transcendence and maybe even poignancy in other words we like endings that elevate we like endings that elevate and if as we go through this passage today I want us to notice something about the good news and the bad news see the empty tomb was not initially good news for Jesus disciples and his followers no when they got there it was confusing and they experienced confusion and despair and despair but that disillusionment wasn't going to remain No, there was good news to come. It's going to actually give way to this ecstatic realization and seeing and hearing the risen Lord. And so can we keep that in mind today as we look to God's word that we might see rightly what it is that he wants to communicate to us. So John chapter 20, we're going to begin in verse 1 and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 10 and we'll pause there for a moment. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the empty tomb while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is brotherly love in action right here. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. The scene is set for us in a, in a, next to a tomb, but it reminds us that in a garden from ages past that paradise was lost. And now through an empty tomb, paradise is going to be regained. And Mary arrives first, but she didn't know what was being restored in this moment. It was confusing to her. She responds as many of us would have. Her hope was dashed. Her, her master is missing. Her friend is gone. See, Jesus had changed her life. He had cast seven demons out of her. He had freed her from the torment beyond what many of us would be able to understand this morning. Jesus gave her a new life. He gave her a reason to live. He gave her a place in his kingdom. He gave her a sense of worth. He gave her a sense of dignity, understanding, compassion, love, and hope. And he was gone. Scripture records for us that she was at the cross because of her love for Jesus. And that same love had drawn her to this tomb this early morning. But the stone is gone. Verse 1 actually tells us that the stone had been taken away. And Mary may have thought, as was common in the day, that the tomb had been raided in some way. And so what she does is she takes off to get help. And as we go along through this passage today, I just want us to take these brief moments to just think about our own lives and how it is that we may respond in different circumstances. And it's right for us not to criticize Mary for expressing sorrow over Jesus' death. Even though we know the fullness and we have the fullness of the Scripture to tell us what the end of the story looks like, many of us respond the same way in moments of life. So we don't criticize her for expressing sorrow over Jesus' death. Death is always sad even in jesus case but we do learn from her example see we, we want to learn to avoid living as if sorrow is the final outcome because with jesus death is never the final outcome resurrection is and as we read in john 20 all of the highest levels of meaning and theological terms, all of the understanding that is brought forth throughout Scripture, all of that is present in this empty tomb. But as it's described here by John, these high-level truths come down to a very human level. And that serves you and me today. Because what John is doing is he is inviting us, to, to, as he describes the, the events of the day, to stand there with him in the same way that he is, kind of open-mouthed and astonished at an open tomb. Think of how verses 5 through 7 capture three different uses of the word saw in the Greek. Now, I know that it may not be captured that way in your Bible, but in verse 5, John saw. In verse 6, Peter saw. And then in verse 8, John saw again. Why, why would the writer kind of stack this language in that kind of a way? Why, why the repetition? Well, he's wanting to draw our attention to something. He wants us to see something. And so he uses this form to draw our attention to it. So in verse 5, John saw, kind of with a mere glance, yes, empty tomb. And you got Peter kind of taking like a, a Sherlock-level approach to it in verse 6. He, he saw in a way that takes careful notice. Oh, but then, in verse 8, John saw, and, and what this really says in the original languages that he is getting more than just a mental picture. He is seeing something with an understanding of what's happening. He's seeing with understanding. See, Peter had sight, but John had spiritual insight. 
to see what's really going on. Love has also brought John to the tomb. And then with eyes of love, he sees and he understands what physical eyes alone will never be able to properly see. The empty tomb, folded grave clothes, well, that's pretty shocking evidence that Jesus is alive. And John believes that to be true in this moment. Love has brought him not just to the empty tomb, but love has brought him to faith. What John is beginning to understand is that in Christ, death gives way to life forevermore. The bad news comes before the good news. Death precedes resurrection. As we continue through our passage this morning, we're going to see that we have this glorious identity. We have this glorious inheritance. We have a glorious future and a glorious hope. Let's look at John 20, beginning in verse 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. You know, in his resurrection, Jesus has not only broken the bonds of sin and death. He he now rules and reigns over the limitation of space and time because he's escaped the weakness that earthly existence brings. Perhaps some of us us experience that weakness of earthly existence more and more by day. Perhaps it's even things that you're facing physically. But the posture toward life that Jesus is encouraging his followers is not just one of passive amazement. It's a posture of life of active mission. They are not to cling to him, but they're to share him. When, when Jesus calls Mary by name, he immediately comes into focus to her. Now, I, I'm not a great photographer, not even with my iPhone. My kids love going through my Instagram account, which I hardly use anymore, and they love laughing at all the filters back in the day that I was using just to cover up how terrible a photographer I actually am. But I do know this. I do know that on certain cameras, if you press the button halfway down, a lot of stuff's going to come in focus. And on some of my wife's older cameras, that is the trick that I try to use most when she bravely asks me to take a picture. And in this moment with Mary, it's like pressing that button halfway down. When Jesus says her name, everything comes into focus in an instant. 
It snaps to place. But what we have here is this tender moment of focus when Jesus said, Mary. And then she recognizes him and cries out, Rabbanai. This is actually one of the emotional highlights of the entire gospel, but it it begs us a question today. Whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? Is it the one who completely alters the power of death? Because if it's not, might I suggest him first? When I say that he alters the power of death, this actually matters for our lives each and every day. Verses 2 and 18 of John 20 so far actually show us that the power of death has been changed completely. So when Mary found the body gone, her report to the disciples is basically this, I didn't see his body. I didn't see his body, his physical body. But look what she says in verse 18. She doesn't say, I have seen the Lord's body. What does she say? I have seen the Lord. Here's how this helps us understand Jesus altering the power of death by conquering it. See, he died himself. He stared into death's cold, cruel eyes, and with infinite power, he defeated it, rendering death impotent because he not only died by his power as the divine one, he rose again. And that's power. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, every person walked the earth the way that some of us may still today, where we are unsure of when death will strike. Jesus disarmed death. He took away any sense of awe and power that that it may have in our lives because he showed us what awaits those for those who are his. Once we pass from this life, what awaits us is resurrection into eternal life. Now, you may have a King James Bible with you. I'm not knocking the translation. Sometimes different translations will say different things. I believe it's the King James Version that says, do not cling to me. I'm not sure that's the best kind of understanding coming out of the original language. Do not cling to me. He says this. Not to cling to him, excuse me. uh, King James Version says, touch me not. I think it's important for us to realize this, that it's possible for us to miss the best in the Lord because we're holding on to the good that he's done in the past. So let me ask you this, what version of Jesus are you clinging to today? Is it cute little baby Jesus in the manger? You may need that, and that's fine, but is that all he is to you? Are you clinging to this passive, well-groomed lifeboat named Jesus that you only call on when you're in trouble and life seems to be ready to swallow you up? You may need that, but is that all he is to you? What about the Terminator-style temple destroyer? Is that the Jesus that you only ever look to? Or are you getting to know Jesus in full? His heart, his His thoughts, his motives, and his actions moving toward you and toward others. This is instructive to us because we're not just to linger about the shrine of the resurrection, but we're going to need his power in order to be able to declare it to be true. Mary was changed from mourner to missionary when she met the living Lord, and the disciples were also radically changed. Yes, they are still followers. Yes, they are still disciples learning to obey the commands of the Lord. But now they are also a new word, brothers. 
And we'll look at that a little bit more fully in just a moment. But these brothers, this sister, they are now commissioned on a mission of peace. And so let's look at John 20, verse 19. We're going to read through the verse 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side when the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you would withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus came to these men and he stood in the midst of them. This isn't some peripheral visit. It's an assurance of his presence, but he wants his presence to be at the center of their lives, which is where he'll be with them forever, the very center of it all. In his first words, peace be with you in verse 19, is far more than just a familiar greeting because what the disciples are realizing in this, minute, this moment is that locked doors cannot give you peace. They also can't keep your Savior out. He shows up and he gives these frightened disciples what it is that they need most. He gives them him. He says, peace be with you. And this is a peace that is based on his sacrificial victory on the cross. You may wonder, how is it that you can say that? Well, Romans 5.1 helps us to understand that where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 19, the first peace that we come across is peace with God based on his sacrifice on the cross. And when he shows him, shows them, shows the disciple the nail, nail prints in his hands, the great wound in his side, it says that they're glad because they've seen the visible evidence of the victory that he shares with his followers in his peace. They're seeing the evidence of that. This is not another Jesus in some kind of prestige moment who has come. These scars are the marks that prove the crucified Jesus is the same one who is the risen Christ. These wounds are his credentials to minister to you and to me, no matter our circumstances today. They're the same scars that the church gathered together, his body on earth. That means you and I. They're the same scars that we have to bear if we're going to continue in the ministry authentically of Jesus. And then Jesus commissions these men. In the same way he sent Mary forth with the message of life, he now sends his disciples. They're given a mission for which the, that the Son was given by the Father. So if the first piece in verse 19 is peace with God, then the second piece in verse 21 is the peace of God that comes from his presence with us. We might summarize the peace in verses 19 and 21 like this. In verse 19, see my hands, it's me. In verse 21, see my hands, now go. And in carrying out Jesus' commissioning of them, he knows that they need the power of the Holy Spirit. He knows that they're going to need power and energy of his risen life through his Holy Spirit so that they can accomplish his mission of healing and of peace. So Jesus breathes on these men. Think about it. The imagery that's happening here. In the same way that God breathed his life into that first man. 
becoming a living soul, so now his son shares that, that type of intimacy of his own resurrected life with his disciples. And in that moment, they become this new humanity recreated and empowered for their mission. And Jesus breathes on, him, on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now for these disciples, this gift is to be accepted now, but it's just a foretaste of the person and the power to come person of the Holy Spirit yet to come. He's going to remain with them permanently after Jesus returns to the Father. And in the midst of this, there's one disciple that goes from doubt to declaration. Let's read on in John 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and, and see my hands, and, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen him and yet have believed. Maybe you're at a place today where you will not believe until Jesus himself Christianity itself passes your battery of specific and very scientific tests. I wonder about the anguish of Thomas during that week, tossing between hope and fear. He was there at the triumphal entry. He was there at Jesus' death. But he he sees something on the other disciples' faces that he doesn't share in, and that's belief that Jesus is alive. But, but Jesus deals tenderly with Thomas's doubts in the same way that Jesus deals tenderly with our doubts and questions as well. Maybe that's a bit of an example for all of us today. Jesus came to Thomas. Jesus even complied with the conditions that Thomas laid down. He was set on winning this one starving soul to himself. And Thomas responds to this interaction, my Lord and my God, why does he do that? Because all of his demands for proof are forgotten. To Mary and to Thomas, to the others, the sight of the resurrected Lord has been granted. This is key for us to understand today though. Faith does not finally rest on sight or smell or touch. Faith rests on the word and call of the risen Lord. John believed before he saw the risen Lord. So we believe and trust the witness of those who have seen and believed. So what might be some of those Proofs that we've witnessed along the way. Well, how about an empty grave that we celebrate today? Nobody found. How about the disciples that were radically changed, transformed from gloom to gladness, despair to hope, sorrow to joy? How about the church 
built on the resurrection as a result of accepting that resurrection of their master. Let's be honest, usually a a sect or a cult or just a, a loose group of zealots are going to lose momentum after the death of their leader. What about the personal transformations? The influence of Christ on individuals and communities from His time to our time, including the one speaking to you right now, many of those sitting around you right now. What's the purpose of all of this? The purpose for, of all of this is that we would come to trust in the resurrection in a way that leads to belief. Let's look at verses 29 through 31 together. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by by believing you may have life in his name. It's important for us to read the Word of God, to listen to the Word of God, to understand the Word of God very carefully and critically. Because our eternal lives depend on it. John acknowledges that not everything is captured in this book that happened in the years of Jesus' ministry, even the days that followed his resurrection. But what is captured in this book is what is necessary for us to be able to believe. And so his word stands alone as enough for you and I to hear the call of our risen Savior. You know, throughout this past week, from the triumphal entry last Sunday through Good Friday on Friday night, and now to Resurrection Day, we've been reading and studying through a gambit of emotions. We've gone through the highs and lows of life. We've encountered a number of different characters, some of whom we may find ourselves able to identify with when we walk through certain circumstances. It's curious to note that in these highs and lows, through all of the individuals and personalities, Jesus was able to minister to them all perfectly in the same way that he can minister to you today. More than that, he was able to offer salvation in full through his own reign, redemption, and resurrection. They were offered the opportunity to become brothers and sisters of the Lord. And you and I are offered that opportunity as well. This means that we're offered inheritance like the promise of love, the promise of acceptance, the promise of fellowship, the promise of inheritance. So you may be here this morning and you may be the most moral, you may be the most pious person, you may have religion figured out in your own mind, but John 20 says that without Christ you are dead in sin. But the one who trusts in Jesus, the one who commits to following him, has been what? Given life. As Anna begins to play, you may find yourself wondering, well, how is it that I obtain life? Well, it's by this, by confessing Christ as Lord and committing to following him as Lord. I'm just going to ask you right now, if you you wouldn't mind, would you just close your eyes? Everybody in the room, every eyes closed and head bowed even. This is is time between you and the Lord. Let's be honest, you don't owe me, you don't owe the person sitting next to you anything. But this is business that should be done between you and God. 
So let's just take a moment with our eyes closed and head bowed to do that now. Perhaps you're here today and you've been running from that call, that sense of call from the Lord calling you by name. And in this moment, you have that sense of he's calling you yet again. He's saying, you are mine. See this resurrected life. Know this resurrected life. Know the hope that comes with an eternity that is sure. See, our hearts, they tend to run from God. They want to rebel against Him, and the Bible calls this sin. Part of the good news of the gospel is that God loves you. And He wants to save you from your sin. He's saving you from yourself. He wants to offer you a new life of hope. And in order to give you this gift of salvation, God made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, who we celebrate His resurrection today. But it's not just His resurrection. It's the fullness of His life and His example to us. It's the depth of meaning of His death, satisfying the wrath of God on your behalf. It's the glory of His resurrection and ascension, now mediating even in this moment between you and God the Father. And he may be calling your name specifically today. So how do you receive this gift? You receive this gift of salvation by faith alone. There's nothing that you've done that says you're worthy for Jesus to take note of you. There's nothing that you can do that is going to make you worthy of that. There's nothing that you can do that will lose his saving grasp of you. but we receive this gift by faith alone. We believe. So faith is a decision of your heart that will ultimately be demonstrated by the actions of your life. And if you trust that Jesus died for your sins and you want to receive new life through Him, you don't have to do it out loud, but just right here in your heart, would you just pray this very simple prayer with me? Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. I now accept your offer of eternal life. Thank you for forgiving me all of my sins. Thank you for the gift of new life. Would you give me the power of the Holy Spirit that from this day forward I might choose to follow you? It's that simple and yet that profound. And you may wonder, well, well, what's next? If you've trusted Jesus today for your salvation, can I just ask you to very simply do this? Share. Share your decision, maybe with one in your family, maybe a friend that brought you or one of our pastors here at the church. Find me. Let me know. 
Because if you're not already attending a church, I, I certainly want you to feel welcome here to learn how to worship and grow in your faith in the same way that each one of us is striving to do by the grace of God. I would even encourage you to follow Christ's example. Be baptized by immersion in water as as a public expression of your faith. Those are very simple ways to take next steps of faith. But you may also wonder, once, once I obtain life, how will we live? And I know this may be the majority of people who are gathered here today. But it's no less a profound word to us today. How will we live? Think of how amazing this is. We live in relationship with, we live on mission for, and we live in the blessing of Jesus. That's how we live. Once we obtain life, how will we live in relationship with, on mission for, and in the blessing of Jesus? So on this day of reflection on Jesus' resurrection, it's normal for us to proclaim Christ is risen. And how do you respond, church? He is risen indeed. This is an important reminder for us of this truth that He is risen, but it's a little bit more than that, though. It's also practicing for us and repeating the glories of our risen Savior. Not so we keep saying it to each other in this kind of filter bubble of this room. It's so that we learn how to say it to others as we go out of this room today. It's so that we share this good news with those that we encounter in our own families, our friend groups, our homes, our campuses, our workplaces. We are now clothed in Christ's own righteousness One day we will receive rewards for every good work we've accomplished in His name. I appreciate the work of Dr. David Jeremiah on this where he acknowledges the Bible lists at least five crowns that will be awarded in heaven amongst a, a variety of other rewards. What are those crowns? The victor's crown. You and I will receive the victor's crown. You and I will receive the crown of rejoicing. You and I will receive the crown of righteousness. You and I will receive the crown of life. You and I will receive the crown of glory by living faithfully for Him. But let's be sure to remember, and this part is very important, the Lord Himself is our utmost prize. So Revelation says what it is that we're going to do with those crowns and glory. Revelation 4, the end of verse 10 and into 11 says this, They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Psalm 8 speaks of the dignity of humanity as created beings, created in the image of God, but it also points to our need for a Savior. Hebrews 12 picks up on this theme of saying in Christ as our Savior Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he may experience death for everyone. And then looking forward to eternity as the fulfillment of a prophecy that we read in Isaiah 2.8, excuse me, Isaiah 28, it says this, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people, and a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment, and strength to those 
who turned back the battle at the gate. The remainder of this prophecy captures a portrait of the rest offered to the people of God who are weary. It's a subject that too often gets ignored in the church. So rather than listening to him, the prophet, they sought deliverance from any other means. They sought numbing and distraction by any other means. But for those who will find their strength in the Lord of hosts, he will himself be their crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. So let's stand together, church, and begin offering the praise that will ring throughout eternity to our risen Savior.